As the children are being dismissed, everyone else, if you would please take out a copy of God's Word. Turn to John chapter 13. This is going to be our last time in John chapter 13. Sadness. But John 14 is next. Gladness. We have a short passage this week. uh, John 13 verses 36 through 38. They can be found on page 900 in the Pew Bible. John 13, 36 through 38. Last week was all about love. The law of love. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And yet, as J.C. Ryle says, there is no command of Christ that is so much talked about and yet so little obeyed. Why is that? Why do so many greatly love the idea of love in theory, but little live the idea of love in practice? Let's consider that more this morning through the person of Peter. Last week, we opened up with an illustration of graffiti on a bridge. Uh, love is gold on the Williamsburg Bridge. Uh, let's do the same thing this week, but in the spirit of International Sunday, let's do it international style. Uh, Australia, as I said, on January 1st, 2000, does anyone remember this? To celebrate the new millennium, the world-famous Sydney Harbor Bridge was lit up with one giant word written in very familiar script for the whole world to see. It's estimated that two billion people uh, witnessed this as the bridge lit up in bright lights with the word eternity. Eternity all across the bridge. It was there for the Sydney Games as well. So maybe you saw it during those in 2000. Why eternity? Why did this secular state celebrate a secular holiday by emblazing the word eternity on one of its most iconic landmarks? Well, it was because of the infamous Australian. We don't know him. They would have all known him. His name was Arthur Malcolm Stace. And he was known as Mr. Eternity. Why? For much of his life, Arthur was a longtime illiterate alcoholic, survived, uh, fought in the First World War, survived, was living a hard life afterwards. And by the grace of God, he came to faith. He came to know Jesus in a church in Sydney following the war in the year 1930. And then, for the next three decades, every single day, Arthur would get up early and go around the streets of Sydney chalking the word eternity in on the sidewalks in chalk. He'd get up every morning at 4 o'clock. He would spend one hour in prayer, and then he would go out to a neighborhood he had designated for that day. He would have this yellow chalk in hand, and he would spend the time before dawn writing this one-word sermon Eternity. He had been down, he would write it, he would get up and walk another 100 yards, he'd write it again, 100 yards, and write it again until the sun came up. He did it for 30 years. And for 30 years, the identity of Mr. Eternity was unknown. And the mystery became quite a sensation and an obsession in Australia until his identity was revealed toward the very end of his life. But why? Why would this man spend hours every single day for almost 30 years walking around and chalking eternity on sidewalks? Well, it was actually a a couple of years after his conversion, he went to hear a famous Baptist preacher, uh, John Ridley. Ridley was a fascinating figure, also 
fought in the war. He was decorated with the military cross for bravery under fire. He popped his head up above a trench as he was leading his men and got shot in the throat. And they grabbed him, bound it up, healed him. And then he got back out and continued uh, fighting and serving um, in the war. And then went on to, after the war, become Australia's most famous evangelist. And in a famous sermon, now known as the Echoes of Eternity, uh, preacher Ridley said this, Eternity Eternity. You can still go listen to it in its cool voice. I wish that I could sound or shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? And Mr. Arthur Stace heard that sermon, took it to heart, and then instead of shouting the word eternity, began writing the word eternity daily on the streets, confronting as many Australians as he could with that which they must one day face, eternity. Again, go and listen to the sermon. It's a really good sermon. I was listening to it this week and Ridley says, no word is more passed by and ignored than the word eternity. I agree. I think he's right. And I believe, I think I can make a case, that love is actually right up there with eternity. Why is love, and by love I mean not, you know, not our cultural misunderstanding of love, but true, biblical, Christ-like love. Why is love so passed by and ignored? What's well, going to turn out to be the same reason that eternity is? It's because, most simply, our attention is elsewhere. We are preoccupied. We are preoccupied with self. We are preoccupied with pride. And in this very short passage in which Christ predicts Peter's denial, I think that we can learn much about ourselves and our similar problem. Christ has given the clearest and kindest command, love. And Peter has missed it entirely. You, last week, have just heard the clearest and kindest command, love. Maybe you have missed it entirely. And then there's eternity, the biggest and most important of concepts. What if there's an eternity? What if your soul goes on into eternity? Wouldn't you want to pay that much attention? And yet, maybe we miss eternity entirely. Love and eternity, eternity intimately connected and yet often entirely missed. Why? Well, let's consider Peter and let's consider ourselves in Peter. Initially, I wanted to compare Peter and Judas in this sermon. I was reading ahead in John chapter 18 when we get to the arrest. And it's interesting how John constructs it. We go back and forth between uh, Jesus' trial, Peter's denial, Jesus' trial, Peter's denial, and it's like John is intentionally comparing and contrasting Jesus and his response and Peter and his. And I think it's in and through this contrast that we are more confronted with self and what our sin really is. Our sin is always, ultimately, a denial of Christ and his love. We are Peter. And so I want to follow that pattern and structure our time by going back and forth between Jesus and Peter. And in this contrast, hopefully we can better understand our sin and ourself and better appreciate Christ's grace 
and mercy. So we'll start with Peter. Uh, Point number one, we will see first Peter's preoccupation. Then point number two, we will shift to Christ's passion. Point number three, we will come back to Peter and look at his pride. And then we will close with point four. Don't miss point four and Christ's precious patience. So that's the plan. Let's read John chapter 13. Our text is verses 36 through 38. Let's pick up the reading in verse 31 to kind of help us set our context. So John 13, I'll start reading in verse 31. Let me encourage you to pay attention, for this is what God wants to say to you today. John 13, 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. If you would, let's pause, let's pray, let's ask for God to help us in this time. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that your word is living and active and uh, used and inspired by that spirit for the purpose of revealing to us uh, the Christ who is life. We ask now that you would uh, do that very thing on our behalf. Show us Jesus Christ. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, Do through me what I cannot do uh, by myself. Father, draw us to Jesus. As we consider Peter, help us to see ourselves in him. As we see ourselves and our sin in him, Father, show us Jesus and his goodness and his grace, his patience, his mercy, and his kindness. And Father, give us a growing love and affection for him as a result of this time. Glorify your name, build and help and encourage your saints, uh, draw and save sinners. Um, In this time we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Point number one, uh, consider Peter's preoccupation. We all know what it means to be preoccupied. Some of you are preoccupied with your phone right now. Some of you are preoccupied with the delicious smells that are going to start wafting uh, from the kitchen and the food that we're about to enjoy and eat. And so we're talking again about attention. We're talking a lot about attention, for we are always giving our attention to something. And as we've been seeing, in large part... Our attention determines our life. What you give your attention to reveals what you give yourself to, reveals what you really love and live for. So what are you preoccupied with? The word from the Latin literally means to to seize beforehand. What has seized your attention before all else? What are you engrossed and absorbed in? What do you show excessive 
and compulsive concern. Some of you have been preoccupied with politics this week. Some of you have been preoccupied with a relationship situation, a financial situation, a health situation. Some even less significant things, your entertainment and ease, your fitness and fun. None of these are bad things, but none of them are ultimate things. All of these can be good things in their proper place and position, but can become deadly destructive out of their proper place and position. Uh, It was not until college that I was really introduced to Augustine. We had to read his uh, City of God in a philosophy class, and I'm pretty sure it was a bridge diversion because the whole thing is about this thick. And then later in another class, I finally read Augustine's Confessions for the first time at age like 19 or, or 20. I quoted the Confessions last week when Augustine prays to the Lord, I have become a puzzle to myself. Amen. If Stace was Mr. Eternity, I feel like Mr. Puzzle. But Augustine's feeling of self-puzzlement was rooted in a more basic idea, one that was quite profound, as Augustine very much begins and opens his confessions with one of the greatest sentences ever penned, not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when Augustine writes, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So good. To be human is to be made for God. To be fallen and human is to have a restless heart, as it is now separated from the God for whom it was made. That's why Augustine would famously define virtue or goodness simply as having rightly ordered loves and thus vice or sin simply as disordered, out of order, out of aligned loves. We were made to enjoy the God of life and love Him and find our life in Him above all else. Sin is simply when we set Him aside and displace Him and pursue our joy Elsewhere, Sin is when we are preoccupied with anything above and other than God. Sin is when we love anything above and other than Him. So, what does this have to do with John 13 and Peter? Good question. Look at verse 36. Our text begins with a question from Peter. Lord, where are you going? And I am arguing that this is evidence of a preoccupied Peter, because of what has come directly before his question. Look at it and listen to verses 34 and 35 again. We cannot hear these enough because we do not heed these enough. A new commandment, law, I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one another. What a word that is. What a weighty word, this law of love. For that is what God's law is and always has been about. The law has always been about love. God is the highest good. God, the God of life and light and life in loving us, wants us to know and find where love and light and life are found. They're found only in Him. And so he lovingly tells us, he reveals himself to us, he reveals his good law to us, which is rooted in his love, reveals his love, and reveals how we can love him 
in return and love one another in return. I don't listen to people that tell you that law is bad and love is good and that these are different divergent things. No, they go together. In God, He graciously gives us His law of love and reveals Himself to us and reveals life to us through that law. We can't keep it perfectly. We don't. Praise God that Christ does it for us. But that then means that we are now enabled and empowered to love and to keep and delight in this good law of love. And so we're going to come back to this in point two, but uh, Jesus has just said, you guys now, you disciples, all of you, love as I have loved you. And remember, this is all in the context of his symbolically washing uh, the disciples' filthy feet. Oh, I don't like feet. Uh, but remember, it wasn't even about that at all. It was a symbol. He's pointing forward to what he's about to do for the washing of their filthy souls in dying for their sinful souls. So the love, as I have loved you, the love that he is commanding is a self-sacrificial other serving love, a pursuing of the good of the other at great cost to self. So Jesus has just said, love like that. Love as I have loved you. This is my command. This is how the world will know that you're mine. This is one of the main things I want to leave with you before I leave you. My love for you and the love that you must have for one another as a result. And Peter's response to all of that, to this high and lofty and beautiful and impossible uh, but good call. Hey, where are you going? Nothing about love. Nothing about that great law. Peter diverts and distracts. He averts and avoids. Clear, heavy, hard, but good word. Love one another. Hey, where are you going? Be careful of what Peter does here. I am the king of qualifications. I was uh, getting a uh, PhD in ethics to toot my horn for a second. Uh, I didn't finish it. I failed uh, because Ed showed up and pulled me up here to New York and I never finished my degree. But ethicists are the masters of justifying and explaining away why what is simple and clear does not mean exactly what it says that it means. And it does not apply to us exactly as it seems to apply uh, to us. Be very wary of ethicists. We can be uh, tricky and sneaky. If your first response to the law, love one another as I have loved you, if your first response was to look for excuses and exceptions and reasons why the law isn't as demanding on you and your life and how you conduct yourself and relate to others, or if it's just to ignore it, you might be missing something important. You might be so preoccupied with something that you're missing something eternally important. Of course. There are difficult situations. Of course, we need to use wisdom in the application of all God's laws. Of course, there are abusers and there are divisive people that we need to protect others from. Um, But note that Jesus does no qualifying in that verse. Love one another. As I have loved you, love like that, period. That's the goal. And why? Why would we want it to be otherwise? What about mean people? What about my enemies? What if people persecute me? Surely that's an exception. Matthew 5.44 Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He just could not be more clear. The point is that the as I have loved you changes everything. 
The point, as we'll see in the next point, is that God's love for us is so unimaginably great and undeserved. This is the whole point of the parable of the unforgiving servant. right? I, I forgave you this infinite debt that you could have never paid. I loved you this much and you refuse to forgive someone else for these, these couple of bucks. You refuse to love others. Well, the point is that God's love for us is so perfect and it is so costly that there is nothing that He cannot call us to. And He calls us to love as He has loved us. It's high. It's huge. It's hard. But it's good. I've loved you perfectly. I've given you everything. For, I've given everything for you in my love. Now love one another like that. And one more time, Peter's response. Hey, where are you going? Not behold what manner of love. Not depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Not I believe, help my unbelief. Not apart from you, I can do nothing. Help me love and keep your commandments. But hey, where are you going? You know, I think this is a preoccupied Peter. Entirely missing, or maybe dismissing the point. And we are a preoccupied people. We are very good at entirely missing or dismissing the point. Point number two. Here's what Peter is missing. Peter is missing Christ's passion. Where does this point come from? Remember, it's got to come out of the text. We'll look at it. Peter's question is not entirely out of the blue. Look at verse 33. Jesus has said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Peter's responding to that. So am I overstating my point? Preoccupied Peter. I don't think so. Let's see. Our point is Christ's passion. What do I mean by passion? Do I mean his intense affection? No. We saw last week in Christ's use of that term, little children, that his love for us is both love of affection and action. He loves us and he likes us, which is amazing because of how unlovable and how unlikable we are. What, what, what grace is God's love? But that's not what we're talking about here. By passion, I mean Christ's suffering. That's what the Latin word that uh, passion comes from literally means, suffering. You're probably familiar with Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. I never saw it. And I never will. You probably shouldn't either. Come to Henry's Bible study on the second commandment on Thursday if you're wondering why. But the term passion is often used to refer specifically to the events beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're, we're an hour or two away from Gethsemane. Uh, starting there through his death on the cross uh, a few hours later the next morning. But we know that, of course, in a sense, the whole of Christ's life from birth to death was a passion. So our point here, generally, his passion is his substitutionary, sacrificial suffering. This is Christ's passion. Well, is this in our text? Well, I think so. Look at the rest of verse 36. Here is Christ's response to Peter's question of preoccupation. Where I am going, going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterward. There's a whole lot there. First, I want you to draw your attention. I want you to note the cannot. That is a striking and unexpected cannot. You cannot follow me, Jesus says to his followers. We've talked a lot about discipleship in chapter 12. 
Verse 26, Jesus has said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And so we've argued that a disciple is fundamentally a follower. A disciple believes what Jesus says and does what Jesus does. A disciple follows Jesus. This is a major theme in John's gospel, but it's even more so in the other three gospels. Matthew uses the word 25 times. Let's consider a few from Mark. In the very first chapter, Mark 1.17, we're first introduced to the disciples, and Jesus sees Simon and Andrew. This is Peter, Simon, same guy. And one of the first things that's reported to us of Jesus saying to Peter is, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Then verse 18 says, immediately, Mark loves the word immediately. Uh, Mark says the action gospel, he uses that word 42 times. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. That, that's discipleship. Immediately leaving everything else and following Christ. One more, Mark 8, 34, one of the classic discipleship verses. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A disciple is a follower. Jesus calls and commands, follow me, you must Follow me. And it's repeated again and again and again throughout the Gospels. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christian. Or that's what it means to be a Christian. Follow me. And so, when we get to 1336, and all of a sudden we read for the first time, you cannot follow me, well, we should take note of that. But why? Why can we not follow him? Well, that's Peter's very question. Look at verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? So stop there. And I believe that this is Peter's pride. We're coming to that next. But focus first on Christ's passion. He is going somewhere that his followers cannot follow. He's doing something that his followers cannot do. Yes, a disciple believes what Jesus says and does what Jesus does. But this... This is a doing that we cannot do. This is a doing that must be done for the disciples. Listen to verse 38 again. Add a little emphasis to it. Maybe you'll hear it a little bit differently. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? You see, Peter in his preoccupation is missing the main thing. It is not Peter who will lay down his life for Jesus. It is Jesus who will lay down his life for Peter. Jesus does not need Peter's death. But oh, how much does Peter need Jesus' death? John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. What does that mean? What does a good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here is further how we know that Peter is preoccupied. They are still sitting around the table where Christ has just instituted moments before the Lord's Supper, saying in Luke twenty two twenty, This cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant is my is poured out is the new covenant in my blood. Luke also tells us that right before Jesus predicts Peter's denial, so seemingly after the institution of the Lord's Supper and after maybe the, the washing of the feet, we don't know the exact order. But somewhere right in there, right before this, the disciples were once again arguing about which of them was the greatest. Amazing, right? Preoccupied 
pride. We're no better. In Mark, three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10, leading right up to the so-called triumphal entry and the, the final Passion Week, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He has told them again and again and again. His departure is his death. His death is the sacrifice for our sins. He died for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Have you ever thought about that last line, by the way? For me who him to death pursued. You ever considered that? We talk a lot about Christ's loving pursuit of us. But don't miss how much more amazing that love is in light of the fact that we first pursued him in our sin to his death. For that is what our sin is. Our rejection of God as God. Our foolish attempt to uh, dethrone Him. To ungod Him. To kill God. That's what all sin is and attempts to do. You know, how evil then is sin? How, how foolish is sin to think that we finite uh, creatures can kill infinite eternal God? And yet, here's the most amazing thing. For the Christian... For the elect, for those who are His. In a sense, speak carefully, we and we alone succeed in our attempts to murder God. Not because we have any actual power over God or can in any way harm Him, but because He, in His unimaginable, unexpected love, willingly submits Himself to death. Freely chooses to come and become a man and to die the death that our sins demand and deserve. We seek to kill God in our sin. God in His grace comes and dies for that sin. This is Christ's passion. This is the gospel. This is the one thing that you are visiting with us here this morning. Or if you do not know and love Jesus, this is the one thing that you need to hear today. You need to see the great affection of Jesus that results uh, in the great passion of Jesus for His people. His love results in His death for us. That's the whole point and purpose of the coming of Christ. Man in his sins separated himself from the God who is life. And thus man in his sin is dead. Spiritually dead. For there to be life Something had to be done about that sin, which is death. And that's why Christ has come. That's why Christ is going to die. Instead of demanding that death from us, we who owe that death, God is providing that death for us through a perfect substitute, Jesus Christ. He is going to die for Peter's sinful preoccupation and Peter's sinful pride and your sinful preoccupation and your sinful pride. And this is why and this is where we cannot follow Him. This is what He and He alone can do. As God, only He can pay the infinite penalty that we deserve for our sin against the infinite God. As man, only He can represent us as men and women and stand in our place. He is going before us. He is going for us into the very pit of hell. And in an eternity of suffering that our sin demands. 
so that we never have to. We don't have to follow him into the one place that we desperately don't want to go because we cannot come back from that place. But he can because he is the God man. And he did it so that we could be washed and made new and given life and reconciled and restored to relationship with the God who is life and joy and peace. Church, our thoughts of God are simply too small. They're significantly too small. We are preoccupied with such insignificant, foolish things. We are consumed and concerned with that which is so little. We are angered and annoyed by that which is relatively nothing. When God himself has come to die for us, for you. Do you really believe that? That your sin was so terrible that only the death of God could pay for it. But that God is so good that he did die to pay for it. Again, what else, what else matters if that is true? Nothing. Nothing compares to this. Nothing can touch this. This is why Christ can say, love one another as I have loved you, because I have loved you eternally and perfectly and died to forgive you from an eternity of hell. You're mad at me? You think my sermons are too long? You think I'm boring? Who cares? God loves me. And we see that in Christ. Love one another. See Christ's passion. Be preoccupied with that which Paul tells us is of first importance. With he who is of first importance. Paul decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we should decide to do the same. But we so often don't. We still so struggle to fix our mind on that which is first. Why? Point number three. Let's consider Peter's pride and our pride. Look at verse 37 again. We've already read Peter's words in 37. Lord, why can I not follow you for now? I will lay down my life for you. Okay, let's try to be fair to poor Peter. It would be easy to pile on Peter here. I would have performed no better, and I probably would have performed far worse. And there is, of course, a genuine knowledge of and a love for the Lord that has to be motivating at least part of his question and concern. But, as we saw on Thursday in our Peter's excellent excellent exposition of the first commandment, If you missed it, you should go back and watch it. Peter argued that idolatry is the most deceptive of all sins. Amen. Agree and agree. But what does that have to do with this, Peter? What does idolatry have to do with this text? Is Peter really prideful? Well, yeah, he just, of course he is. First off, from Matthew's account of this scene, we know that Jesus also warned the disciples that they will all fall away this very night. But, Matthew 26, 33, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And how is that anything but pride? Yeah, sure, okay, Jesus. Those other ten scrubs, the bench warmers, you might be right about them. But I am Peter. I am the rock on whom this church is going to be built. I will never fall away. that, That has to be pride. Peter has great confidence in his self. His power, his faithfulness, his abilities. For that is what pride is. We just read Psalm 10, talking about the wicked. What is it that characterizes the wicked? Psalm 10, verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek 
him, God the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. It's a pretty good definition of pride. Pride does not seek God. Pride lives and acts as if there is no God. Again, you can profess that there is a God. Do you live as if there is a God? There's like professed atheism and then there's practical atheism. How do you live? Pride lives as if there is no God. The previous verse, Psalm 10.3, says that the, the proud, wicked boasts of the desires of his soul or self. And this is what pride is and does. Pride is so focused on self that it cannot even see God. C.S. Lewis famously writes, Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Uh, famous 19th century preacher Archibald Brown, he was converted under Spurgeon's ministry, became probably Spurgeon's favorite student. He eventually became the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle after Spurgeon's death. Um, uh, Pastor Brown preached in one sermon, We need fear no language we can possibly use, being too strong to denounce pride. The proud man is simply one who bends the knee and worships a more hateful idol than can ever be found in the whole catalog of heathendom. And the idol's name is self. And what is idolatry but love and pride of self? Peter quoted the Heidelberg Catechism uh, Thursday, which defines idolatry as having or inventing something in which to put our trust in instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Anyway, whatever, whatever it is that you put that trust into, whatever it is that you are looking to uh, and loving and pursuing to find meaning and purpose and identity and happiness, ultimately, it's only yourself that you look to and love and pursue. Idols are ultimately just the means through which we pursue ourselves. There is ultimately only one idol, and it's the self. Whatever it is that you are looking to and living for and loving, you are doing it ultimately only either in the worship of the Lord or in the worship of the self. And so what we really see here is that our first and third points are the same. Right? Peter's problem is pride. Peter is preoccupied with self. Your problem is pride. You are preoccupied with self. And I am the chief of sinners. Peter misses or dismisses the great law of love for others because he is so focused first on love for self. He misses or dismisses the great saving example of love in Christ on the cross because he is focused so first on himself. We can miss and dismiss anything and everything because we are so focused on self. Are you aware of how aware of yourself you are. For this is all that pride is. Self-fixation and self-absorption and self-concern. And this is our problem. This is the problem. This is the world's religion. I recently read a book on the discovery of the source of the Nile called The River of the Gods. Richard Burton was the explorer who eventually discovered it. Uh, not a Christian he was an awful person. I can go read about him. Very fascinating. But he pretty accurately said in this book, the more I study religion, the more I am convinced that man has never worshipped anything but himself. 
mean, he's almost entirely correct. Almost. Peter is not the only one with a pride problem. Now, let's be careful. Hold on. You shy and quiet and self-effacing out there, uh, you are not off the hook. We think pride, we think loud and proud, we think big and boisterous, and often it is. I don't know about you, but I have the amazing ability uh, to swing quickly between crazy confidence uh, and crippling insecurity, almost within like a minute. Between I've got this and I'm worthless. But what's the common core behind both seemingly contradictory conceptions? It's all pride. Both are different forms and manifestations of that same root sin of pride. Both are the result of an inordinate and obsessive focus on self. Beware the pride of self-pity. Beware the pride that demands things go the way that you want and then determine that you get to be sad when you don't get them. I really struggle with that. That's pride. We all have a pride problem. And there is no problem more dangerous James 4, 6, and elsewhere. God opposes the proud. You do not want God to be opposed to you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus says in Luke 14, 11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. But why? Why, again, why is that? Again, I'm made it clear that pride is terrible, it's the chief of sins. Why is that? What can be so bad about this thing that our culture says is so good? We paste this word all over things. This is good. Uh, Well, as we saw on Thursday, pride is a denial and a rejection of reality itself. It is a denial and rejection of the God who is at the very center of reality itself. Pride would be like the, the not planet Pluto, right, coming in and declaring its centrality and somehow displacing the sun from the center of our solar system. Pluto, though, is tiny. It is smaller than our moon. It does not have the weight. It does not have the glory to be the focus of our solar system. The center cannot hold. And so somehow were Pluto to displace the sun, the whole solar system would go spinning off into space and everything would die. Because Pluto cannot bear the weight of being the center. And nor can you, nor can I. And so for us to position ourselves as the sun and center, it's to destroy ourselves. For that is not who we are. And even worse, it is to greatly offend the holy God who is the sun and center. In our sin, we're saying, no, 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 you're not God. I think I can kind of be God. No, 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 you're not good. I'm pretty good. I'm going to do this thing. Beware the pride that is death as it rejects and opposes the God who is life. Beware the pride that blinds you to true goodness and beauty. Jesus has just given the most beautiful and brilliant of laws. Love one another as I have loved you. He's just given the, the most beautiful and brilliant examples of that love. His death on the cross in our place. Can you see it? Or are you too preoccupied with self? See Peter's pride. I will lay down my life for you. You will deny me. Point number four. Even more. See Christ's patience. The rest of first, verse 38 again, and we're done. You know, the fourth point is always the shortest, so don't worry. Verse 38. 
Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. How is that Christ's patience? Well, this point could have been Christ's prophecy. Christ is again demonstrating his deity and his perfect foreknowledge. He knows beforehand what Peter is going to do. Uh, This man who is about to die is God. See that in his prophecy. But I want to emphasize his precious patience as we close. And so we see Christ's patience here also in the fact that he knows. He knows what Peter is going to do. He knows the denial that is coming. He knows Peter's pitiful, prideful heart. I read an 18th century Anglican theologian this week who said that he would rather be hanged by the neck and his body thrown into the swamp than that anyone should be allowed to look into his heart. Amen. We do not really know one another. We would be horrified with what we saw if we could look into each other's hearts. But Christ can and does look into each and every one of our hearts and sees all of it, all of it, so much more clearly than we see it ourselves. Remember Hebrews, we all stand naked and exposed before him. He knows. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. And he graciously and patiently warns Peter about what is to come. And then after he looks at Peter and witnesses the denial, he graciously and patiently goes to the cross and enters into his passion, his suffering for Peter, for his preoccupation with self and his pride and his denial. And then he graciously comes back to Peter after he rises from the dead. He comes to this Peter at the end of the book and he restores him. Peter denies him. Jesus affirms him. Peter rejects him. Jesus restores him. What precious patience the Lord shows to his preoccupied, prideful Peter. What precious patience the Lord shows to his preoccupied, prideful us. Psalm 103. One of the best decisions I ever made years ago was memorizing Psalm 103 and meditating on it constantly. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He clearly just didn't deal with Peter according to his sins. Verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Church, God is a compassionate, patient father. Go to Sunday school this morning and and rehearse Peter close with, with God's delight and his children, in, in us. He delights in us. He's not the grumpy, miserable, short-fused taskmaster that we so often think that he is. I removed a John Owen quote from this part of the sermon because I was getting too long, and then Peter used that exact quote in Sunday school because great minds think alike, and I want my mind to be like uh, his. Like the greatest disservice you can do to the Lord is to doubt his love 
for you. See that love in the cross. What do you think of when you think of God? Do you think of him as gracious, compassionate, patient father? He knows your sin. He knows your struggle. He knows your pride. He knows your preoccupation. And Christ still goes to the cross. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. God is patient. Where is your attention? What are you preoccupied with? Is it this? Is it this gospel of grace? Is it this God of all grace? The one who offers us an eternity of joy when we deserved only an eternity of misery. Don't miss something so big because you are consumed with something so small. Don't miss the gracious God who is inviting you into communion with Him and who is here sending His Christ into hell itself so that you can and will come. The text out of which uh, Pastor Ridley, the Australian evangelist, preached his Echoes of Eternity sermon, he preached it from Isaiah 57, 15, which says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly heart, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's our God. See him in Christ. See him giving his time and attention to pitiful, prideful, preoccupied Peter. See his love. The holy God on high who inhabits eternity dwells also with the humble and lowly with us to revive our hearts and our spirits and to give us life. And Christ is how God does it. Christ who is Emmanuel, God with us. Fix your focus on him. Pursue preoccupation with him. Lay down your pride at the feet of the one who laid down his life for you. He is a gracious and patient and complete Savior. Find both love and eternity in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our Father. We thank you for Christ who comes so that we can cry out to you Abba, Father, so that we can speak to you as our Father. Father, if any of us still cling to these harsh and and severe and misguided views of, of who you are, Father, help us to see who you are in Christ. Help us to see who you are in Christ in this passage as he so patiently and graciously deals with prideful Peter. And as he he has so patiently and graciously dealt with prideful each and every one of us. Father, you are so much better than we think. Help us to see. Help us to see who you are. Help us to see who you are in Christ. And help us to love him and trust him. And desire to be more and more preoccupied entirely with the Christ who is life. Do your work now by your spirit through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.